few words about the Panoe podcast. Our mission is to bridge the gap between science and fitness. Through Panoe, the world's first clinical-grade cardiometabolic analyzer for the mass market, we give everyday consumers access to the biometric monitoring and guidance once only available to Olympians. Our clients range from wellness and weight loss coaches to world-renowned triathletes, leading academic institutions, and healthcare systems. What they all share in common is the dedication to the belief that science-based decisions hold the key to any fitness and health goal. Throughout our journey that started from research and nanosensing technologies and evolved into assisting people improve their performance and health, we recognize that science and fitness have drifted apart. We launched this podcast to address this gap. Here we bring cutting-edge insights from athletes, coaches, scientists, and industry leaders who share their knowledge and experience of how science-based decisions lead to success. Welcome to the Panoi Podcast. Today's guest is Sean Preston. I've known Sean for many years as a friend and fellow strength and conditioning professional, both in Canada and in China, and consider his approach to training athletes to be well-developed and executed. His background in athletic therapy and strength and conditioning gives me a unique view on training that should be shared with others in our profession. Welcome, Sean. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, let's, let's, for the benefit of our listeners, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, I guess we can, we can start with education. Um, I, uh, I graduated high school in Miramichi Valley High School here, uh, where I'm actually currently, uh, in Miramichi, New Brunswick. Um, from there, I went on to university uh, in Fredericton, New Brunswick, to start at St. Thomas University, and then after one year there, transferred to University of Maine, Presque Isle, and kind of started my path down in the United States uh, for education in athletic training um, or athletic therapy to those Canadians that are out there. Um, what that caused, I actually started in physical education, and then I had a pretty severe ankle injury in the first couple of weeks of school while I was playing basketball, and the process of athletic therapy was so kind of exhilarating and, and interesting to me that I ended up changing majors uh, as soon as I could in the program, basically. Um, so then once I completed my athletic training uh, a couple of years later, uh, I went on, I, I went right out of undergrad to my master's at Old Dominion University in, in uh, Norfolk, Virginia. And uh, again, studying in, uh, in athletic training, but on the science side uh, and education. So uh, came out of there, did a research project with the relationship of isometric strength measures and functional movement scores, which is two common things that are, are tested now, I guess. Uh, we were a little bit ahead of where all the technology was at the time, um, which didn't lead to the most profound study, but uh, it, it got things kind of rolling from a standpoint of how, how we started thinking about assessment processes and, uh, and all that. Um, and then it led into my, my uh, work experience. So graduate school, we, even in undergrad, we had to do clinical hours. So we were in the therapy room uh, 10 hours plus a week um, within our program, hands-on with athletes, learning from our mentors and our, and our teachers. And uh, that followed suit into graduate school. So we were certified athletic therapists or athletic trainers uh, when we were in grad school. So we were doing GA rotations and uh, I worked at a school, Christopher Newport University, which was a, a pretty well-funded division three school. 
Um, and they kind of had all the bells and whistles and toys that at the time, and it, it allowed me to start getting into technology and the use of technology within the assessment system, within, um, within our, our own educational process and kind of set me up across that path of not just doing therapy, but doing a lot more, um, objective assessment throughout our full training aspect, um, implementing some strength conditioning features, um, they had me working with the football team as kind of the person that bridged the athletes from rehab into the weight room again, rather than just being weight room. Okay. Now you're clear. You're going to, or sorry, uh, therapy room. Now you're cleared. You're going to go right into the weight room. So we kind of saw me before that and we kind of cleaned things up, um, and check, check the balances sort of, so to speak to, uh, to make sure they were actually ready to follow the full team program because the strength coaches didn't have enough time to to deal with people one-on-one -on -one either in that sense. So we dealt with the athletes a little bit later in their rehab, which typically doesn't happen in, in situations here from my experience. So um, yeah, that's kind of how it set the, set the path uh, about where I was going um, from there early on. It was a lot about getting mentorships, getting apprenticeships and um, kind of scraping by financially, but gaining experience um, all the while. And, and, following and following out and, and finding people I wanted to learn from. So at that point, I was willing to go anywhere to learn from somebody. So I, it, that took me from, from Virginia for one year. And then it took me over to Los Angeles for, for five months to do an apprenticeship. It took me to uh, Vancouver where I started working for employment, but you know, at, at a little bit lower wage with, with less experience coming out. Um, it allowed me to, to get a lot of experience early and to work with high caliber athletes under good people early. And I think that really set, set the pace for where it is that we understand where good athletes need to be. Um, and it, it allowed me to see what the end goal was going to be, where, where do they need to be to be at the highest level and, and from sports of, of NFL football, um, from collegiate sport, from Olympic sport with snowboard and, and some skiing disciplines, we got a lot of experience there early on. And um, I guess that goes in, not just where they need to be as far as strength conditioning is concerned, but also at a low risk of injury. Right. A lot of, a lot of the planning, a lot, like a lot of my philosophy, a lot of my approach is address potential injury risks first and then, and then we'll make them stronger and more powerful. But, um, and, and, and a lot of the time it just coincides and it goes hand in hand. But if we, if we find things that are, you know, by the research, by the indicators, going to put an athlete at risk or even sports specifically, what injuries are common in that sport and what things can we use to identify the possibilities of, of having that harm right then then we're going to address those things like snowboard and and skiing there was a, a large emphasis on eccentric training within our programming because there was a there was a, a high incident of of knee injuries and it was based off of basically the speed that they had to to dampen to decrease when they made turns um and how to do that i, I guess without decreasing too much so that they could maintain speed but having having that ability to dynamically control and 
And, and so strength went hand in hand with therapy in a sense of the strength side was more of a preventative means of therapy where the traditional therapy techniques were keeping them in tune and keeping them, uh, keeping them together, I guess you could say, right. Cause it's, it's pretty, pretty demanding sports and it's pretty hard on your body. I think that's, it's what, obviously the, one of the great values of having somebody who has <laughs> the dual background of, of, of athletic therapy and strength conditioning. Plus how much do you think, you know, your, the analytical side of, of you has to do with kind of the formal, you know, completion of a thesis and the education that you receive. Well, I think it, like it came at me so fast, to be honest, like through my education, it was undergrad right into grad school. And it just, it kind of just became the norm because that was the demand throughout school. And it wasn't, it wasn't like it was a, a new addition once my like actual career begun at post-education, it was something that we implemented consistently. And it just was different between different sports because there was different modifiables, different, different things we could measure based on where we were with that team or individual or group of individuals and what types of equipment we had to test with them, right? Like sometimes it was very low tech and sometimes it was very high tech. And, and a lot of the time it came down to surveying them with their wellness surveys and understanding there that the best feedback sometimes is just the feedback directly from the subjective data you can get from the athlete, um, which then therefore becomes objective data over time, right? As you start to see, um, see change and variation in, in the way that they are reporting. So, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't massively impactful or, or difficult to implement it. It was just a matter of finding, finding what parts worked with which groups really. And yeah. And how to, how to get value from each. There's so much data collection on right now. It's um, like you said, sometimes it's the basic stuff of just simply checking in uh, with kind of simple wellness checks uh, find out how their sleep is, is their nutrition, how their stress levels are now, now that's so common nowadays, whereas, you know, 10, 15 years ago, nobody was doing this. Right. I, I think like early on, I probably made the mistakes of collecting and not, not, uh, displaying the data for the athletes well. And so at times you started to get, um, more, misunderstanding of like, why am I doing this? Why am I, why am I taking in this information? But as soon as you start displaying this data and showing them the variation in what's going on, wh what's happening with their reports, where, when, when they feel like crap, this is, look, your wellness scores are, are pretty low today. Do you want to, do you want to go into this a little bit? Do you want to talk about this a little bit? Why, what happened with your sleep? Why was, why is your soreness so high? What, like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, there it's, it's, it's conversation starters a lot of the times. And just by letting them know, you know, that you're keeping up with this stuff, it, it, it reinforces their, their willingness to give you this data and to give you this information. And, and when you have a little bit more technology to be able to, to do more, to do more, uh, analysis then you can display a little bit more for them too and you can start to look at okay i'm, I'm going to compare your wellness scores with your 
power output from your vertical jumps and we'll see right there like this is when this is when we're training really hard this is down a little bit um we've been playing back-to-back weekends of games for six weeks seven weeks it's starting to it's like power output starting to reduce a little bit we're at fatigue so we're going to change and modify our training to try to stimulate this power output to be back closer to your baseline so to speak so it's really a lot of it becomes like conversation it becomes conversation starters and it becomes explanation and tools to help you explain to the athlete as well and get them on the same page and get them to buy in with you as well and that's 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 the way I like to use the data that we collect um, versus just analyzing the heck out of it and, and, and reporting on it necessarily. Well, I, th- I think that's, you know, in the old days of uh, bump uh, and periodization, um, it, it, it was understood. I, I think, it, again, I, I, I like looking back in history and, and seeing how what a, a great idea has now been expanded um, that, that ability of being able to say, well, I, I don't, we're not going to periodize a rest every five to six weeks. What we're going to do is we're going to monitor the athlete on a, on a daily basis, uh, pick up trends and then be able to individualize, uh, their periodization, give them the appropriate rest at the right time, deload, uh, so that we can have, continue to have positive effects of our training with, without bringing on an injury. Right. Yeah. Like you, you're going to go in with plan A, but plan A is going to change. Right. So you have to be ready for your plan B and plan C at any point within your periodization. Um, it's cause it's really, it's just a framework. And then you're going to be modifying based off of all the other factors that may change your, your measurables. Right. Yeah. Um, cause there's a lot of things you can, that you cannot change or that you cannot control within the daily activity and daily daily lives of athletes and uh that's that's where you have to be able to to make those modifications and have a system that allows you to make those modifications for individuals within a team or for a team itself agreed agreed oh i i mean besides your you know having a a good diverse uh education you've also worked in like you said in canada the united states but uh, we got to know each other in Canada, but also we kind of followed each other around China a bit mm-hmm. as well. So you've had a chance to also work in multiple cultures um, and obviously experience the, the kind of training that we witnessed in, in China, which uh, is, is extremely different than ours. Yeah. Um, so o- over this with you, the combination of your education, your experience and, and working in different cultures, have you developed your own training philosophy? Yeah. I mean, yes, but it's ever changing at the same time. So like, and it depends, it depends on where you are and what you have, what are you given, right? Like currently I'm working in a fitness, uh, strength conditioning facility and it's in a smaller market uh, area. Like I, like my hometown, Miramichi is a small town, like it's a small city and we're working with minor hockey, but it's not outfitted like, like the typical college weight room or national training center that I've been working with in the last, you know, six, seven years that I've been working. So it's finding different ways to go about implementing a similar philosophy that you've had previously. And really it comes down to 
for me, first is movement competency and capability. And then working off of that framework, because like, I'm not going to load, I'm not going to load individuals if they're not capable of doing the patterns of movement efficiently, but it's finding, finding what we can move proficiently with, and then we can use those to load them and looking at where, where are their risks for injury from the individual standpoint or from a team setting, um, depending on, you know, what groups you're working with. And I think it really comes down to implementing a system that is similar to an athlete development or a long-term athlete development system, but, but done so in a more particular, more uh, precise manner than just hitting, than just hitting the windows of trainability. Right. Yeah. You are, you are trying to address those things for those age groups, but you're also, you're also closing gaps on potential windows that were missed previously and and just because it's a window for that time frame doesn't mean that it cannot be trained or you've missed this window of trainability altogether it's just physiologically these things are a little more trainable at the time at that period and they could be benefited then more than potentially later but if they're missed it doesn't mean that they're not capable to to be trained like if i didn't have aerobic development like early on it's not like i cannot improve that later on it's it's just optimal that's why they call them optimal windows of trainability right and, and some of it some of it like you said is uh the reason why they're windows at certain times is because of where they are in their in their their physical development their the ability to load and and to move with high quality um sometimes you'll work on your aerobic fitness in order to avoid uh bringing on potential injury yeah yeah i agree yeah so uh do you have any comments about uh you know i, I think it'd be a fun uh, there's a few of us that have worked in china uh, what what did you what was your major takeaway from China? What do you think that you've learned from working alongside the Chinese? Well, I learned that it they use a very high volume structure is what I recognized to be the most common thing. Yep. And and what that what that tends to do for them is it gets the the strongest kind of survive early on in the process, and then they're left with very high volume, very high resiliency capabilities for training, which allow them to get a lot of work in and, and it it makes them mentally tough and this and that, but we tend to also see a lot of, uh, chronic injuries with those athletes. And commonly it's not even necessarily due to the, the high volumes, but the, the, the lack of variation in the in the patterning and in the processing of how they, how they apply those high volumes. Right. So there's no, there's no change or variation in their, in their planning structure. It's, you know, the same, depending on which group and which area you go into, it's the same, you know, barbell circuit in the Northern part of the province that you're going to see in the Southern part of the province. And, that's you know that could typically be their weight room but they're those athletes are going through this for years upon years with the same planning and they're never really 
causing a structured program of loading the tissues to help them to adapt to these potential injury risks that are that are a little bit different in every sport, right? So we tend to see the same the same injuries in in the sports across the board. Like judo had low back and knees, a ton of them early on. Like whether it be ligamentous injury or just tendon tendon degradation issues, uh, a lot of elbow issues, a lot of a lot of low back. Almost everybody complained of low back. Then you go see uh, work with another sport, and and it's going to be a different set of common injuries. Often low back is thrown in there in the mix, though. Yeah. Uh, and 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 there it is again. Though, but it's just that those joints aren't getting the stresses they need to take those high volumes in my, in my perspective, from what I saw. And, and, and it's pretty simple planning to just make the adaptations to the program so that you can, you can suit that, uh, that high volume. Cause the, you're not going to change the coach's perspective of, of implementing high volume in the sport. So you prepare the tissues as best you can for that loading is, is the approach that I always took when I was there. So I, I think that was, it was something that I was able to witness, uh, uh, working with Olympic athletes in a variety of sports in China, but also working with some of the, um, the schools, the sports schools and seeing, you know, 13 to 16 year old, uh, kids and the workouts that, that they're being asked to do. Um, it, it wasn't that uh, allowance to allow certain systems to develop first to improve quality of movement, preparing them for the loads that they're going to require uh, when they're ready for it and when it when it's important to apply. And uh, it, it was it was working with a lot of injuries at a very young age, yeah. Um, which is something you should not see. No, <laughs> and I think I, for the younger athlete, I didn't deal a lot with the. A, with a lot of younger athletes while there, but in, in mainland China anyway, but I think it just comes down to their maturation and, and like what their muscles are actually ready for. They were doing, they were doing too much of where, you know, in, in elder, elder population, I, I shouldn't say elder, I guess that's makes it sound a lot older in it, in, in more of the, higher competitive, you know, senior and, and later junior populations like that, they, they probably would tolerate those, those types of activities more than the youth would, but it, it's just, it's just, a, I thought they were doing such high volumes with less variety um, of these movement patterns. So it just caused, it just caused another, another aspect of similar loading all the time, constantly without much focus on the technical standpoint of the movement patterns. And it was just about moving it and doing it and getting it done versus moving it really well and creating an emphasis of a concentration to the movement and loading tissues in different, different ways and different manners. And it, I just, I found that's what was missing most commonly. And, once we made those changes in programs, I thought it was, 
it, it seemed to, at least in the short term, in the six months at a time I was over there, it, it seemed to make a pretty, pretty big difference in the way that they were presenting um, daily with without as much injury or as, without as much injury complaint. Yeah, and I think one of the things you touched on, which I think is extremely important, is, um, you know, with programs that are kind of pre-designed, predestined, and this goes for the general population as well, you know, they they decide to sign up for a half marathon, so they download a, yeah, uh, they download a program, and one thing I drive home a lot with people that I work with is you need to know what the training history is. Exactly. If you do not take the time to collect their training history to find out how much load and what type of load they've been applying recently, uh, number one, you don't know where to start um, with the degree of loading you're going to use. And you also don't know which, uh, which types of training you can concentrate on because obviously what you want to be able to do is kind of pick up the holes that they left in their in the previous tra- training program, let's say in the last three three to six months, um, just adding variation to that is going to be probably one of your best gifts to them. Yeah, like I do remote coaching now that I'm here in a smaller area, so that I I can hit some bigger markets. But what what I do differently, I think, than a lot of other remote coaching is I don't just sell the program. I I have I have every athlete or every individual do an interview with me and we go through that process just as if they were sitting in the room with me when they're a new, a new athlete with me in a, in a training center, we go through their full medical history. We go through their full training history, what injuries they've had, what things kind of just creep up on them and, and, you know, give them little niggles or, or aches or pains through the training process, what they've, what types of training they've done in their training process. And then from there, we can, we can craft a program that's, that's going to be useful to them, but also tailored to them in a way without, and you don't even have to individualize necessarily, but they can be mailbox, so to speak, to, to use Dan Paff's uh, terminology to it, but you put them in, you put them in a category and you can, you can assess from 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 some of our assessment we can we can add on that to their package but the main core root of the program can be from that package sequence of you know their beginner their intermediate their advanced whatever they've done olympic lifts they haven't done olympic lifts they've done traditional strength or it's just been fitness and circuits like you need to understand what they've done because they could have been doing eight years of circuit training and they've never they've never pushed a maximal or submaximal load and and that's not something you're just going to throw on somebody right away like you have to build up towards that and they might not be competent in those loads as they as they get there so a lot of it is is that assessing early communicating early and and then getting some some video feedback with them where they're where they're away from me right or where they're remote the same as what i would do with with someone individual in 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 a training center or in my gym or whatever. I, I think that it's really, um, obviously with COVID, and I'd love to expand on this, uh, a lot more people are working virtually. And of course, uh, Panoi, we've created sessions 
our, our virtual platform. And uh, we've also are prescribing programming for, for people that approach us. And one of the things that I realized, I created a questionnaire. And one of the things I realized is the terminology um, is not clear. You know, uh, I, I, one of the questions was how much cardio work have you done over the last three to six months? Uh, now, if I, if I left it like that, they, they would write, you know, three times per week. Yeah. I followed it up with at what RPE are yeah. you working? And a majority of the time it was between six and eight out of 10. Yeah. I mean, that's not cardio. I, if you, yeah. if you described it, you asked them to describe the program, uh, the programs were essentially intervals. And yeah. you know, this is what's happened with, with the, the web now where people are misusing terms. Uh, maybe we, intervals are good for fat burning, right? Right, Daniel? <laughs> <laughs> I know that, that, that can go on for hours, that conversation. Right? But that, this, the, whole, the whole idea that, that somebody understands cardio as being something that it, it simply isn't. Mm -hmm. so, the same, uh, and it's the same with strength, right? Like yes. people think they're doing strength development, but, but I wouldn't consider it necessarily that based on how long you're staying in those areas. Like someone that does circuit training for eight years, they've could have done circuit training to start out in their training history. And then once they're familiar with movement patterns and they can move on and be challenged more in a more effective manner with, with more complex program structures yep. and, 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 and do so without ever causing harm of injury and, you know, over, over training or anything of the sort, if it's done intelligently and that's, and that's the thing people, people get scared of what they don't know. And they, they don't sometimes don't seek out the professionals to help them with it. And, and that's, a, that's something that hopefully, hopefully can change with, I mean, the, the vast outreaches of, of what's out there now, it's, it's filtering it out, I guess, to find the good versus the bad. We have the, um, the whole idea of, 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 let's say, you know, after eight to 12 weeks of a standardized programming, you probably are going to start getting diminishing returns. Yeah. Uh, you're going to plateau and then you're going to decline if you stay there long enough. Um, that's exciting. I mean, that's how muscle adaptation and neuromuscular adaptation happens. But, you know, knowing where to start with a combination of your training history and your goal, if you have those two things, um, and, and hopefully you have more information, you know, right. some other technology in which you can apply to it as well. But with those two, you're capable of not only being able to design a new program to achieve their goals and to add variation, but you're also going to be able to have a conversation with the athlete um, about their knowledge of the terminology and, and what are the benefits of the different types of training. And it even gets more complicated when if you, if you dare to go on the web and ask, you know, ask what the difference between what's the reps and sets of loads for a strength versus hypertrophy, you're going to find 9,000 different approaches to it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, do you, do you, do you have a, a standardized approach to, to strength training, you know, uh, that you use, um, in identifying who needs it and how to apply it? I typically like with my, 
movement assessments that I'll utilize early in combination that and their training age, training history. Yeah. I'll get a, a fairly good assessment of what they're capable of doing. And I have, I would call them more go-to structured periodizations that I'll apply for them. And uh, whether it's, you know, like, and it goes from different linear programming means when they're, you know, in lower training ages, if they're ready for that even, um, to more complex, uh, more, more complex uh, undulating type models later on, um, depending on where their strength is and where, where their differences between the need of strength versus power is at, at later stages. Um, I use checkpoints for them on capability to move certain loads in certain patterns at, at percentages of their body weight. Um, and that's all it comes after mastery of body weight load. Um, so it, it's more, it's more like I have some sets that I go to often than, than I do have, uh, you know, a, a standard necessary process. Cause it's sometimes, I mean, we're seeing athletes now, some athletes are very well outfitted at home in a home gym, like with COVID, for example, like in, yep. in different areas that are locked down and some athletes have very minimal equipment. So you have to, you have to give different programs based on that just clearly because of the amount of load that they can do. Even if you're looking at athletes that move darn near perfectly, I still have to assign different, different load scheme periodizations just to allow them to use the equipment they have in their household. Yeah, versus I wonder, I wonder what the long-term ramifications of this will be. It's kind of, like you said, there's, there's people that, you know, that set up a gym the instant they heard about this. Yeah. They already had the gym set up. Yeah. Those that wanted to do hypertrophy or strength, but no longer have the loads available to them that they had at their local facility. Uh, I wonder what the long-term ramifications of them doing uh, strength training differently than they traditionally would. Well, they, I mean, they're probably going to end up missing some, some, some variations on what they would normally do and some flow of like, if we were thinking about Bompa's planning, like we're looking at, you know, a GPP and then we're going to go to hypertrophy. Then we're going to go to basic strength. Then we're going to go down the pattern. They might have to go a little bit more back and forth to access what they're capable of using in the air, in the, within their area or their space. Right. Yep. But I mean, we can play with, we can play with time under tension. If we need to get hypertrophy, we can, we can play with different variations in, in complexity of movement patterns for someone that's a little bit more advanced as well. Like I can load up tendon tissues with a lot of different exercises versus if we wanted to, like if my goal was, okay, we're going to do some heavy singles and doubles, slow eccentrics to increase tendon, tendon strength. Yep. Uh, we, we can do that in a full gym, but we can't do that in their gym because one, they don't have the safety mechanisms in the, in their rack that they have, but they also don't have the load that, that they can load on the bar. So, so how do we change that? We can, we can approach it with a different, different strategy, right? We can change the complexity of the movement so that it's, it's a more controlled 
movement that we're still going to get tenant load. Like, will we get the same amount of, of recruitment? Probably not, but we are still getting some, we are still getting some, some tissue load for the tenant specifically. Um, we can change the speed at which we do it. We can make it more dynamically centric. Uh, so there's, there's lots of variations that can be utilized, but, but in this situation, I don't think we're always set up to be in the optimal training mode necessarily, but it's, it's trying to be as optimal as we possibly can with, with what we have to do it with. And I think that like, that's how I'm approaching this currently. Like I have a lot of athletes in, in Winnipeg and I had athletes in Hong Kong on my remote coaching system and both were in lockdown at the same period. Whereas high in New Brunswick was not in lockdown. We were in like the lowest of, of the lockdown modes here. And so for me, I'm in the gym coaching kids with a mask on, which is the only difference for me and some space and more spacing and they're locked away in their basement and, and the strategies and the, you know, like you have to understand what's, what area, what zone is, is actually being affected in the country at the time or in worldwide, if I guess you're coaching internationally and, and what you're assigning to those people in different areas. Right. I had another athlete that was in Sweden and they were kind of in the same situation as myself. Like the, the team, the team is full go allowed to be in the gym all that stuff. And then they went to a full lockdown for a two week period because someone in the league got tested positive for, for COVID and yeah. it changed the whole atmosphere for the way that we were training her in season programming. Right. Like we were just about to go through, they had a little break for, for their like all-star type Christmas break. And, and we were going to load, load her up really well during that period because she handles load very well. And we weren't capable to do that anymore because they went into shutdown during that period. So she missed that whole window that was going to be a big loading loading part of her program. So now the rest of the program for the season is going to change based on that because now she won't tolerate those loads that I was planning for the future after what she was going to was unable to go through, right? So now we have to slowly kind of micro implement it throughout a couple more weeks into the season before we taper out to playoffs. So these things you have to be agile in your, in your coaching strategies and it can't be set in stone by any means, because just when you think it's going to be solid, it's probably going to change for you. Right. So it, it, you can't just have one approach necessarily. You have to, you have to be a, you have to be open to, to different ways to go about things. Like it's, it's the way it is right now. 